infrequently talk about our contributions and our presence in higher education, which goes all the way back to our presence at Oberlin College. Uh, all the way back. We were always there. Not always there in the roles we should have been in, always having to fight for the right to be there, always often treated uh, differentially. I, you know, it's like the, a path between triumph and tribulation. And always black folks sitting in graduations just happy to see someone cross the line. While 28% of whites over age 25 graduate from college, for African Americans, it's just 13%. For Latinos, it's 8%. For Asians, the number is much higher at about 32, 35%. But the fact is there are education gaps that haven't been closed, and we need to close them. And so it's just so apropos that we're here at a university, the souls of black folk, centennial reflections, and the career of W.E.B. Du Bois, perhaps something we can all learn from as we talk about African-American people in higher education. Du Bois was just such a tremendous person. He lived until the day before the March on Washington in 1963. So he lived almost 100 years, like 99 in a minute. Now, I tell people all the time, I go to Ghana, I think I'm Ghanaian. I mean, you couldn't prove it otherwise. I can't trace the roots back. I mean, the only evidence I have of past history is that Malvo thing. And people always ask me, well, were, you, were your people French? I'm like, the slave masters were. I don't know about any Frenchified stuff, but my dad was from Opelousas, Louisiana, and we've actually done some family history. There's some Malvo vineyards in France. I wrote them a letter, and I said, I want my reparations. And I... <laughs> And in case the reparations movement hadn't made it to Europe, I sent them a pamphlet from Incobra, you know, the National Coalition for Blacks on Reparations Action. I'm like, you know, they got a vineyard named after me. I like my wine. Let's see if we can work something out. Couple cases a year anyway. But on the other side, I can't make the African, I, we have no idea. Those of you who've been to the continent know that our African brothers and sisters are so welcoming that no matter where you go, they tell you you look like some tribe. You know, you're walking, you know, walking through the Ivory Coast, you look just like that tribe. Then you, you look just, I'm like, wait a minute now, y'all. Let's not get confused. But whenever I go to Ghana, and I've been now eight times, I sit by W.B. Du Bois. I just go sit by his grave. I tell folks, you know, if Hillary can talk to Eleanor Roosevelt, I can certainly talk to W.B. Du Bois. You know? But he was the first African-American American to get that PhD from Harvard. Um, he wrote a dissertation that was absolutely brilliant about Reconstruction. And then he could not, as so many could not, find a job. He wanted to teach. But what he found was research money to go to the University of Pennsylvania, where he was appointed an assistant instructor, which means like you lower than low. These, you in the academic hierarchy understand that an assistant instructor is like a title they had to invent for him. They didn't have that before. He could not teach anybody. What he was charged to do were the just monumental studies and sociology students, I would commend them to you, the Philadelphia Negro. And so what he did for two years was studied black people in Philadelphia beginning the groundwork for sociological studies of African American people that take us through this day. 
he went on to the Atlanta University Center and had just the, one of the most checkered careers, probably why I identify with him. When people read my bio, I just shake my head and say, it just means the sister could not keep a job. Uh, <laughs> at first she was here, then she was there, doesn't sleep and couldn't keep a job. But Du Bois worked, he had two stints at Atlanta University. He, he knew everything, and so obviously the president of the university was not really caring for him but so much, so he left and then again he came back and then he left again. He worked for the NAACP, founding Crisis Magazine, and worked there for a very long time until he and Walter White fell out. And then he had to leave there, and then he came back there again. He tried on every political philosophy there was. I mean, at one point he was a Marxist, he was an avowed communist, he had no problem with that. But he also dealt with some um, more traditional philosophies. His whole point is he would try anything on that could figure out a way to help black people. You know, he was not doctrinaire. It was about helping black people. And so the communistic thread, which he eventually rejected, was very interesting. He rejected because he talked about the racism in the Communist Party. And you know that while the communists had the don't buy why, where you can't work movement in Harlem, they at the same time often relegated African Americans to the periphery. And so at the time that the McCarthy um, regime came in, Joe McCarthy, who went through and just did tremendous damage, this is an era of our history we've just not sufficiently studied, we've begun to um, bring back some of the filmmakers, of course they were white, who were peripheralized. We've never reclaimed Paul Robeson in the way that we needed to. Paul Robeson went from earning in 1946 100000 dollars to earning by 1949 $3,000. And that was simply a function of the McCarthy administration and those folks tarring and feathering him. And Du Bois had the same situation where the black press would not write about him anymore. What he wrote in, in, in one of his biographies, and it's one of the saddest quotes, he said, I who was once revered, now even the little children do not call out my name. And that's what happened to W.B. Du Bois. And so he left the country. After much ado, couldn't get a passport like Robeson couldn't, finally got it back, had married Shirley Graham Du Bois, and she just was such an important person in his life as an intellectual soulmate. And when I, when I was a kid, I used to read some of the things that she wrote, and um, you could tell I was a nerd. What can I say? She used to sign all her letters, Egypt is Africa. And I used to say, duh. Uh, you know, in other words, yeah, Egypt is Africa. Look at the continent. But the fact is that there are all these people who wish Egypt wasn't Africa. And so try to make it the Middle East. Well, how is it sitting on the African continent? Sitting right there. There's no bridge, no water. You know, but it's the Middle East. And I didn't really get it until the first time I saw the exhibit with the, uh, all the, the Egyptian artists. Oh, they don't want us to think black folks had that much sense. You know, but in any case, the Du Bois history and study is one that really speaks not only to the souls of black folks, but to the, basically to the tragedies and the tribulations of African Americans in higher education. And yet there were triumphs too for all the tragedies. You don't want to have a, I'm not going to tell you war stories for my whole speech about what bad stuff happened to black folks. Because in the middle of the bad, there was always good. W.B. Du Bois had students. He mentored so many people. Dr. Dorothy Height loves to tell a story, and it's just the most delicious story, about how when she was a girl, and she went to NYU in the days where Columbia would admit one negress a year. So the year that she applied to go to Columbia, they didn't admit one, so she went down to NYU. And we don't have to go far back to find this stuff, so I keep wanting W 
you know, baby Bush, the man who had the affirmative action admit to Yale, you know, I mean, it, it, it interests me that this man, this is an aside, but I mean, he, was, I mean, he didn't get in there because of his SAT scores, let's be clear. And then he went back there the year after he was president and told the young people, you too can be president with a C average. I'm sitting there saying, yeah, if you have no melanin in your skin, you know. Uh, but, I mean, how dare he preach mediocrity while demanding excellence? And just an aside. But in any case, <laughs> Dr. Hype. Well, you know, when Dr. Hyde tells these stories, if he, Dr. Hyde is 90 years old, she'll be 91 on March 26th. And so we, and, and we celebrate her every year because we're just blessed to have her. And she's like a walking history book, you know, literally. So she told a story about how she had been working at the Y. She was the youngest person working at the Y before she met Mrs. Bethune and then decided to go work for Mrs. Bethune. But she um, had, they had a group of young people who had a study group in New York. And so they called WB up on the phone. Can you imagine? I'd like, Dr. Hyde, you did what? She picked up the telephone and called W.B. Du Bois. I mean, this was in the 40s. He was famous then. I'm like, excuse me. And she said, and he said, oh, sure, we'll meet with So once a month, he sat in the basement and met with young people and talked about black history. You know, he was really the man. When I talk about higher education and black folks, I give a talk often to some of my corporate clients called Making Room for Sadie. And it's a talk about Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander. And I'm not going to tell you the whole Sadie story, but I'm going to tell you some of it because it really does speak to all this with the added complication of what it was like for African-American women. Now, Sadie Alexander was one of these phenomenally brilliant women um, who uh, went to the University of Pennsylvania undergrad, uh, went there for graduate school. She came from one of these families in Philadelphia that was the talented 10th, to use one of Du Bois's terms, the black elite. Uh, her, her uncle, Henry Oselotan, is the artist that Bill Clinton bought a painting of to hang in the White House, and that was the first time something by an African-American hung in the White House. Henry Tanner, too, found the restrictions of the United States so stifling that he left the country at age 28 to go to Europe to paint. He felt that there was no space for an African-American painter here. But Sadie went to Penn, and she went to Penn for grad school. Her doctoral dissertation was on the migration of the Negro to Philadelphia in 1916 to 1919. This is, a, this is a period in history we call the Great Migration, when African-American people left the South in droves and came North. Two reasons. One, World War I emboldened black folks. This was a war in which we fought for the right to fight. But black men went back South wearing uniforms and found themselves being lynched went back south and refused then, having fought for the liberty of this country, to yield the sidewalk to some random white person and found themselves being lynched. And so people pulled. But the other reason people came north was economic. The agrarian economy of the south simply wasn't working. You weren't generating enough jobs. People couldn't make it as sharecroppers. And so they came north. It was aided and abetted by the Chicago Defender, the newspaper that was from Chicago but distributed all over the United States. And I love the Chicago Defender and black folks' imaginations. It showed pictures of people doing very well. So folks are, he's doing well, so can I. We have a picture in our family of this brother we call Leroy. Okay. <laughs> Leroy standing in front of a Cadillac in Chicago, sent the picture back to Mississippi. So look what I got. The half of my male relatives said, Leroy's not that bright. If Leroy could figure out how to get a Cadillac, surely I can do the same. Well, they got to Chicago find out it wasn't Leroy's Cadillac. <laughs> you know, he was just standing in front of it. 
But in any case, black folks came in great droves. In fact, the Great Migration is partially responsible for the founding and development of the National Urban League. The Urban League attempted to um, socialize black folks from the rural south into the north. They had to apply these basic lessons like no chicken, you know, no chickens, live ones that is, in your apartment building. They just don't let you do that in the north. Um, but in any case, the Urban League was a social work organization whose roles were to make sure people found jobs and do other things, largely generated by what happened in the South and moving people south-north. But in any case, Sadie wrote her dissertation about the migration of the Negro to Philadelphia, 1916 to 1919. It's a beautiful dissertation. She was one of the first to actually put together consumption indices, which now the Bureau of Labor Statistics does to measure what people spend their money on. But she did this for this small sample, and we can't find any that predate her. In fact, BLS data postdates her. So one might say that she was a pioneer there. In any case, this masterful dissertation was written, accepted, she graduated, she could not find a job. The historically black colleges and universities were not always welcoming to women. Indeed, uh, much to Ernest Everett Just's discredit, while W.B. Du Bois chafed at the role assistant instructor, there was a young woman at Howard University to whom he conveyed the same title. She had a PhD but he would not give her the equivalency of allowing her the same status as a teacher. So she was an assistant instructor. The only two people I've found in the history of anywhere, now I'm not looking everywhere, but it's interesting, assistant instructor. So there was not room for black women, especially assertive, um, self-confident, bougie black women like Sadie Alexander. The women's colleges like Swarthmore and others had never hired African-American women. So Sadie Alexander went back to, uh, went to North Carolina to work at North Carolina Mutual, was a black-owned insurance company that exists to this day. This is like taking an actuary or, and, and giving them the Safeway cash register and saying this is what you're supposed to do. It was definitely not the work she needed to do. But she did it for two years while she mulled over a plan B. And then she came back to the University of Pennsylvania, got a law degree, became the first African-American woman admitted into the, um, the uh, Pennsylvania bar, and maybe the second woman. There were not many white woman lawyers at the time, and became a very distinguished lawyer. Her distinction was so great that um, folklore in Philadelphia has it that when the men did not know how to act, the women told them, we would send you to Sadie. In other words, she had her areas where family was family law. She could get all your money. So, you know, this was like sort of like the bedside threat. Act right or I'm going to send you over to Sadie. But she also had a very distinguished career in social action activism. She was the first president of uh, the biggest and the baddest black women's sorority in the United States, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority <laughs> Incorporated, of which I incidentally happened to be a member. Uh, <laughs> she chaired, she was on a... President Truman's task force on the integration of the armed troops. Uh, President Carter appointed her to the, um, his Council on Aging. Uh, she was on the Urban League's board very early on. She was on the board of the United Nations Association. But her love for economics lasted her whole life. I visited her collection, which she gave to the University of Pennsylvania. She was buying econ books until the 1960s. She died in 1989. But she was buying econ books well after she had ceased to study economics. She was the first African-American woman to get the PhD in economics from um, 
what did I say she went from Penn? Okay, senior moment number two. She was the first African-American woman to get that degree in economics. Uh, all, and she was the second African-American woman in the United States to get a PhD at all. In fact, Sadie's ego was so interesting that for years there was a back and forth between she and the other woman who got the PhD. They got it in the same year, but the other lady got it one day before. And Sadie was not really willing to cede that she was not the first, even though the other lady got it one day before. Uh, and so there's a little bit of correspondence going back and forth, and finally she agreed to say among the first. Um, but in any case, uh, so I, I never got a chance to meet her either. One of her daughters is a good friend of mine, and she always says, don't tell those stories about my mother, but they humanize her. They make her interesting. And of course, the human dimension to where African American people are in higher education is interesting. So many of our people have always been proud of us. They call us doc, and back in the day, you used to call us fess. You know, whether you had, were a professor or not, if you had a master's degree, you were fess. If you worked at the post office. That's Fess Wilkerson. That's Fess Robinson. The enormous pride that came from a higher education accomplishment at the time that doors and doors and doors were slammed in faces. I want to tell you about another woman. Well, the point on Sadie when I talk about making room for her is a kind of an interesting personal story. Chancellor, we've talked about my colleagues and their precision. Um, a couple of years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, some of the black male economists decided to do a book on black American economic thought. And so we had a conference call, and I was on the call, and they were mentioning all these guys, Abram Harris, da-da-da. And I said, well, what about Sadie Alexander? And one of these, uh, no, I said, I haven't heard any women. And one of these fools sort of sneered at me, well, there are no women economists who've really contributed anything significant to economic thought. And I said, you know, you should be glad we're having this conversation on the telephone. Uh, because <laughs> this could only be a telephone conversation. I said, well, what about Sadie Alexander? And he said, well, Sadie um, really didn't do very much economics. Well, you know what? He's right. Sadie Alexander worked in the economics profession for maybe two years. She wrote perhaps three or four manuscripts. Uh, she did some work for the city of Philadelphia, um, some incidents work on tuberculosis. Uh, she, of course, did the economic indices. She contributed an article to the Crisis Magazine and to Opportunity Magazine. But she couldn't find a job in economics, and so she moved on because she had a plan B. However, should we write her off because by conventional standards she did not do what the others did? Indeed, what I ended up doing is contributing a piece on Sadie to the volume, and I dared anybody to turn it away. I said, okay, y'all, I'm writing this, you know, who wants to have, you know, pistols at high noon, or you'll put it in the volume. They put it in the volume, but it really reminds me of where we are now in terms of things like affirmative action. People will talk about the conventional ways that they're doing things without looking at the things that go behind the conventional ways. Who told anybody that an SAT score measured anything? In fact, one-fifth of our nation's colleges don't use the SAT score. Now, let me be clear. I think that black folks can do anything that white people can do. And sometimes we can do it better. So I don't think that we should say we can't pass the SAT. However, I think it makes a lot of sense to look at how the SAT connects to the ultimate goal of finishing college. After all, the EEOC forced employers to do the same thing. The EEOC said you can't have a, a test for a job that doesn't relate to the job. In Boston, they had Boston bus drivers. This is funny. It's really funny. When I was an undergraduate, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination actually looked at the test. You had no black people driving buses in Boston. How could that be? Well, the test was a test that had been passed down from generations, literally, for years and years. Everybody, you had the test, you gave it to your nephew, he studied the test, he passed it. But then you looked at the questions. Very few of the questions asked you anything about where something was in Boston. There was one question that just amused me tremendously. Where is the River Danube? 
Now, the answer is whatever it is, it sure in the hell ain't in the city of Boston. I mean, why do you need to know this to ride a Boston bus? This may be useful general knowledge, but it would not get you from Roxbury to downtown. And so when, when you start putting these kind of questions on, you say, what is this about? Similarly with the SATs, they do measure some things. What SATs measure are your ability to finish your first year of college, ceteris paribus. In other words, your first year, if everything remains equal, you have no stress in your life. Your boyfriend doesn't break up with you. Nobody dies. I mean, everything equal. So if everything is equal to the negative, what about to the positive? What about interventions like tutoring? What about interventions like mentoring? What about other kinds of interventions? It just seems to me that this University of Michigan case is way off base, and it really denies the whole issue of composition. In the last piece I wrote for Black Issues in Higher Education, I write about the art and science of composing a class. And I related a little bit to the art and science of doing what I do, TV. I mean, I think that I'm wonderful, but I can't be on every panel. Well, for one thing, I talk too loud, and I talk too much. So what if you have two, two talking too loud, talking too much? There's some folks I can't be on the panel with. It turns into fisticuffs. So clearly, if they were there first, you can't have me. You know, you, I mean, we can say we want diversity, but diversity does not mean you want four black women. You want some, so you've already got a black woman who's always been there. You don't knock her off. You say, okay, now we're going to look for an Asian woman. We're going to look for a man. You're composing a panel. And that's often what composing a class is like. We want some of this and some of that. Some of these and some of those. We, yes, we want the legacies. I don't have anything against the legacies. They bring a sense of history to a class. But you know what? We want the people of color. We want the rural folks. We want the musician. You know, we want to take a chance on folks. Imagine how boring a class would be if you had all valedictorians. I mean, please. You know, I was a dorm mother at MIT for one year. This was, I mean, imagine, the, I mean, these little nerds were so bad, their idea of having fun, you know, was like sharing a beer among seven people. You know? <laughs> Let's all have a sip. <laughs> and that was a good time. So you really want to talk about the value of diversity in terms of composing a class. And then the second person I want to tell you a little bit about in talking about black folks in higher education is my mentor, Dr. Phyllis Wallace. And she's relevant because she's actually the person who was the research director of EEOC when they passed the rule that you had to have a job test be relevant to the job. She also actually did all this research and decided that psychological testing in employment was indeed discrimination. Dr. Wallace was the first African-American woman who got her PhD from Yale. She earned it in 1946. In the state of Maryland, if you wanted to go to um, the University of Maryland back in the 40s and 30s, you couldn't go. You could, but when separate, but e because of separate but equal, they would send you out of state if you wanted to major in something that was not offered at an HBCU but offered at Maryland. Got me? Does that sound confusing? If you want to, Dr. Wallace took as a girl, as a 17-year-old girl, the catalog of Morgan State and the catalog of the University of Maryland and said, okay, I'm going to find something that Maryland offers, but Morgan doesn't because I'm leaving the state of Maryland. And the state will pay you money, tuition, room, board, cash, to leave the state to provide you with your separate but equal rights to an education. Imagine that. So she went to NYU, um, pledge AKA, poor critter, but she still was my girl. Um, graduated from NYU and went on to Yale. Now, she loved to, used to love to talk about how discrimination worked for her. And it's a very fascinating talk she'd have. And this is what I mean by the tales of triumph as well as tribulation. At Yale, she was invisible. 
Nobody ever thought she would graduate. There were three women at Yale, and she said the white women were constantly sexually harassed, hazed, etc. Never happened to her. She was the black woman there. She was just invisible. However, at some point they realized you can't let this black woman teach white people. So while most people who have financial challenges had teaching assistantships, she didn't have one because she couldn't teach white people. Guess what that meant? She got out of school in three years. She had research assistantships. So she didn't have to worry about teaching or correcting papers or anything else. She just sat there under the radar. In fact, she went back to Yale in 1986 and got an honorary degree and the Cross Medal, which is their big medal. And I went with her and we met all these people. I don't remember you from our class. No, they weren't paying attention. I mean, African-American people are often invisible, inferior, or exceptional. You know, if we did it, we didn't, you didn't see it. But Dr. Wallace finished Yale and had the same dilemma that so many others have had. No place would hire her. She'd worked at the National Bureau of Economic Research. They said, but we don't hire black people full time. So what she ended up doing was um, going to work, going down to Clark Atlanta University and being miserable. Because most people, as you said, most economists are weird. Unfortunately, this happens to be the case. She was not a person who had ever been a great socializer. She didn't like the, the culture of the HBCUs of uh, fraternity and sorority parties. She was kind of a nerd who liked her reading, liked her art, so she was miserable there. She wanted to be single, and you know black folks, if you've been single long enough, I mean, my mama still sends me random men, you know. <laughs> I'm almost 50, I still get random mail care packages. You know, the mail, so-and-so's nephew was going to be in town, he's not that bad looking, keep him. <laughs> yeah. But black folks are like just matchmakers. They think, you know, I'd be in my grave and they still find somebody for me. Yeah, but she didn't want to marry and she got tired of the matchmaking, and so she said, shoot, I gotta get out of here, I gotta do research. She wrote Adam Clayton Powell a letter that I have, that I still have, said, I am a Negro economist desirous of employment with the federal government. And Adam Clayton Powell hooked her up with the CIA, of all places. So she went to work for the CIA. I didn't know it until 1991. She died in 1993. She told me, she said, you, she said, do you ever hear I work for the CIA? I said, yeah, but I told them they were lying. She said, no, it was true. I said, okay. But there was a big old gap on her resume that said government economist. So you know there was something up. You know, you didn't mention the agency, you just said government economists. In any case, she left the CIA, as she said, to join the Civil Rights Movement, was the first research director at EEOC, did so much for that agency, but then went on to uh, work for Ken Clark at the Metropolitan Applied Research Center where they did the Black Doll Studies, and then went on to be a professor, the first tenured African-American professor at MIT. <laughs> and had a distinguished career at MIT where she mentored all kind of folks um, from both sides. She was a chance of both Glenn Lowry and I were her protégés, which gives you some sense of how iconoclastic she could be in, in basically supporting people. She supported artists and, and business students and many, many others, and passed in 1993. I share her career with you as well as that of Sadie Alexander because of Black History Month, all too often there's some regular names we hear. We hear about Du Bois, of course. We hear Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and Mary McLeod Bethune, but understand that the reason why Darlene's reading of the souls and the names here on campus was so very important is because we can all make our black history, because black history is everywhere, because the souls of black folks are our souls, and they're not only our souls, they're the souls of those who choose with us to embrace the struggle for economic justice, the souls of those, those who choose with us to create access for African American people, the souls of those who reject the notion that you can define through some number or combinations of grades and scores who gets to go to college. The souls of us who say our nation has made mistakes, but now we want to fix them. African American people are America's greatest patriots. We fight for the right to fight. 
We fight for the right to be. We sit someplace in a place between hope and despair, hoping that America will do the right thing, remembering how often it has not. But we celebrate February as Americans. We celebrate our presence in higher education despite the tribulations. We celebrate the lives of an earnest Everett Just. And those of you who can find the out of print biography by Ken Manning on Just, it is just absolutely wonderful. But we celebrate these lives and the lives of an Abraham Harris and the lives of Phyllis Wallace and a Sadie Alexander because they give us a beacon of hope inspiration and challenge about our own lives because they allow us to dig way down real deep and finally say that we won't go back, we won't turn around, that we are part of the American fabric. Power, said Frederick Douglass, concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Those who want freedom without agitation are like those who want the ocean without its mighty roar. Those who want the crops without planting. We have a challenge when we celebrate black folks in higher education. And it is to remember those words of Du Bois, two warring souls in one black body, African and American. We war especially in higher education where black faculty and staff are called upon to do so many things. You're a professor of chemistry but the mentor to everybody. The administrator but the mentor to everybody. The person that somebody's gonna come to when they need something. And you gotta make the time because guess what? Somebody made that time for you. It is so tremendously important. We have such an important legacy. But as our warring souls fight, and as we fight the struggle for justice, we understand that there will be no progress without struggle. Thank you very much.